bästa lyssnare och litteraturälskare. Ingemar Fast heter jag, konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern. Och jag tycker att ni nu ska lyssna till ett samtal som utspann sig den 26 mars 2019 mellan författaren Jennifer Clement och Jesper Bengtsson. Clement är även president för Penn International och den första kvinnliga presidenten. Och då ska man veta att Penn bildades 1921. Jesper Bengtsson är svenska Penns president. Välkomna att lyssna. Thank you. That's yeah, I've got and a lot of wind in it as well. Okay. Uh, it's good to be here and it's very good to have you here. Uh, we're going to talk for a couple of uh, minutes, up to an hour, about your writing and about freedom of speech. It will be time for questions from the audience as well, at least after a while. We start up the discussion first. Uh, how are you? Very well, thank you. And before we begin, I have to thank myself, I have to thank my wonderful translator, Niklas, and my editor, Daniel, and Swedish Pen for hosting me here too. So I just wanted to say that. Yeah, and I, I agree. It, it is an excellent translation. <laughs> I, I have also read the book before this. But tell me, you I are... I do have to say one thing yeah? and one more thing. The only reason I'm president of Penn International is thanks to Penn Sweden, because Penn Sweden nominated me. And Ulla Larsmo was the person who presented me at the assembly. So that's very special for me. So thank you all for that. <laughs> uh, tell me about this new book. Uh, we, we heard about your previous book, uh, but uh, this one, what is this about? Can you describe it? Yeah, this book is about gun violence in the United States, uh, but it's also a book about how guns get to Mexico. So one story that we don't hear about very much is that actually the violence in Mexico and the violence in Central America is fueled and sustained by U.S. guns. So approximately the figure as a low figure is that 20,000 guns, illegal guns, cross every single day into Mexico. And on the U.S. side of the border, there are over 8,000 gun shops. So for me, as a, as a strange Mexican <laughs> of American parents, uh, it was very important for me to, to tell this story uh, because so many people don't actually know about actually the, uh, the effect of the Second Amendment, not only on Mexico and Central America, but a lot of the world. I just read an article that most of the guns that go to New Zealand are from the United States. So uh, I wanted to write a novel about this, and so that this is something of what gun love is about. But, but that sounds very fact-based and, and political, but it's, the book is not. I mean, no. it's centered around a young girl who's living in a yeah. trailer park in Florida. Yeah, so the, so the novel is about uh, uh, a mother and her daughter living in a car. Uh, many people, there's a whole culture in the United States of people who live in cars. 
And this was fascinating for me because I also really love fairy tales. So it was a kind of a Thumbelina idea of living in cars. And they live uh, next to a trailer park. But what's important about this is that they live on the sacred land of the Native American people. Because uh, obviously the first massacre by guns was on the, the Native Americans. And actually, you see that everywhere in the world. If you go to India or to South Africa, so much is about how can the spear or the bow and arrow or the machete or the knife ever win against the rifle. And of course, it never does. So actually, the Second Amendment is, is based on that. So uh, there are spirits of Indians in the, um, in, the, in the book, the American Native people. And then this, it's, it's about gun violence. I mean, it's full of gun violence. And I hope that uh, it's also a book that's full of poetry. So I'm always very interested in how, with language, one is able to turn things that are extremely difficult into things of beauty. And language can do that. You also placed the new book, a story, in the United States. You have written a lot about stories and people in Mexico before. Why was that? Well, I think it was, you know, basically because I wanted to bring uh, the story of how the guns got into Mexico. And actually, for those of you who have read Prayers for the Stolen, the books are actually a diptych. So Pearl, who's the main character in Gun Love, actually appears in Prayers for the Stolen. And there's many conversations between the two books. Uh, so, you know, that's another way that you could see it as prayers being how perhaps a Mexican girl gets to the United States and gun love is how perhaps an American girl might get to Mexico. Uh, okay, turning to the pen issues, uh, why did you become interested in uh, the more political side of, of uh, freedom of speech and becoming active in, in pen in Mexico? Well, I think initially it's because of the kind of home that I was raised in. So I was raised in a home where especially my father was very committed to, uh, to all kinds of things, but most importantly, to, he worked in the civil rights movement in the United States. So when the Kennedys actually came to Mexico, the people that received them were my parents. So that, that's how active my father had been in the civil rights movement. And we were, we were raised... Why, why did uh, they move to Mexico in the first place? So I moved to Mexico, I was just six months yeah. old. And my mother's a painter, and my father was a chemical engineer. So he was uh, sent to Mexico to start the first uh, water treatment plants and help build them. And then he was told to go back to the United States by the company that he worked for. And uh, they both fell so in love with Mexico that they actually, he quit his job and they decided to stay there. And he ended up then working for many companies, including a Swedish company in Mexico. <laughs> It's always Swedish. Uh, but you became the president of uh, Penn in Mexico in 2009. And uh, it was a time when international media, also Swedish media, wrote a lot about the killing of journalists and the fact that probably Mexico was the most dangerous country in the world for people who, who who's, who's writing. Uh, tell us a bit more about that. 
Yeah, so I was elected uh, president of Penn Mexico, and as people who are in Penn know, this is vocational work. We work for free, and we all work as much as we can with the time that, that we have available. And so I decided that, that Penn Mexico would not do anything, no literary events or poetry readings or anything, that we only had time and energy to just concentrate on the killing of journalists and the disappearance of journalists in, in Mexico. So basically it was sort of a campaign that had sort of two sides to it. One was to raise awareness in the world, and the other was to change a law. Because in Mexico, the killing of a journalist was a state crime, which meant that very often the actors who had committed the crime or had ordered the killing of the journalist were also the people who were in charge of investigating the crime. And so that had to change. And so I have to say that even though uh, many organizations such as Amnesty and CPJ and Article 19 and the Knight Foundation had all been trying to change that law, that actually it was Penn that, that was the final sort of push that, that changed the law. Because the thing that's so extraordinary about Penn is that if you need it, you can actually call on this extraordinary worldwide body of, of, the, of you know, uh, great intellectuals and, and people whose opinion matters. And so uh, it's not a small thing when you actually get that going. We don't hear that much about uh, the violence against journalists or the, the disappearance of journalists in Mexico today. Does this mean that the situation has improved? Well, already, and we're still in March, four journalists have been killed this year. So what I think what we're seeing more than anything is a lot of self-censorship, and journalists are no longer willing to cover certain stories or the newspapers or their media outlets are not covering stories. And all this is related to the drug trade, or, or what is it about? Well, it's not really just the drug trade. So these are international criminal organizations. They're very powerful. Uh, you know, they're worldwide. Uh, so they also traffic in people, in children, in extortion, in uh, money laundering schemes. They're very complex. What happened is that uh, the Mexican uh, criminal organizations quickly realized that, that they didn't need Colombia. They didn't need to be a middleman anymore, and they could take all that business away from Colombia. And then something changed. So with all this legalization of marijuana in the United States, and much better marijuana, I remember my children saying at university that nobody wanted to smoke Mexican pot, that they called it Mexican brick because it was full of stones and twigs and was a disaster. But of course, the stuff in California is organic and very special. <laughs> so, so actually that market is sort of disappearing and now the big market, of course, is heroin. And uh, these, there are certain areas in Mexico where all the poppies are being grown and where there are state-of-the-art laboratories that are producing what's called uh, Mexican black tar. And that is the big thing that everybody wants. And nobody wants it from Afghanistan anymore because that's too expensive. Mm. So Mexico is fueling that addiction. Right. right. Uh, you became the president of uh, International Pen in uh, 2015, mm. right? Uh, what would you say now, 
uh, is the most important freedom of speech issue in the world? The most important? Well, you know, I think it has sort of several, like a hydra, it has several heads. Uh, but certainly what we're seeing right now is uh, sort of a, an acceptance that, that this is not important, and an attack on the media, and a rise in hate speech in a very virulent way, which also has to do with the new technologies uh, that, we're, that we're faced with. But it's very alarming that there can be a kind of horrific assassination and torture of somebody like Khashoggi, who worked for the Washington Post, and have there be no consequences. Uh, so, yeah, we're seeing something that we haven't seen for a long time, I think. Wouldn't you say that there is a, like a double trend? The, the, one of them is connected, like you said, to the, to the social media and the fact that people can communicate a lot, which is, raises new questions of, of the limits of freedom of speech or, or who's, who's kind of using freedom of speech to oppress the freedom of speech of others. And then you have the other trend of, of governments and states becoming more and more you know, not interested in actually caring about critique or caring about preserving freedom of speech, but doing more and more as they like, like yeah. the state of Saudi Arabia when it comes to this uh, murdering yeah. of uh, Jamal Khashoggi. Yeah, I think, it, I think both things are happening. And I think the social media thing, it's a little bit like the public square, hmm. you know, where everything is happening again in the public square, even the, the tri trials are being held in the public square, not proper trials. Um, so it has that dimension. But we spoke a little bit about it earlier and how in, in Penn, um, you know, we, uh, be it the board, we serve the Penn membership. You know, we are not uh, dictating to all writers in the world, only we're speaking to the writers who are members of Penn. So the writers who are members of Penn follow a charter. And in this charter, we defend freedom of expression, but we also defend the importance of creating understanding and goodwill among people. So just the fact that you are a Penn member, you will uphold freedom of expression, but you will also not act in these kind of hateful, barbaric ways either. Um, this is one of the big discussions that occurred with American Penn over the Charlie Hebdo Prize. Mm. So there were some members, um, I would say sort of the Rushdie camp, who were very much intense freedom of expression uh, believers. And then there was this other camp that felt that, that the part of the charter that, that feels that um, understanding and creation, creating goodwill is the more important part of the charter. So in, some people sort of see a contradiction within the charter, which I think is, is, is a virtue and a strength, actually. So, so we, we have these discussions very intensely in Penn, as you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what do you mean it's a virtue? Why is it? I mean... Well, because I, I embrace contradiction. I mean, I think that's where metaphor is and simile is. I mean, just in terms of literature, uh, contradiction is who we are as human beings. We live in contradiction. So I think that the fact that our charter reflects that is actually very profound. But still, you, you sometimes come to a point when you actually have to decide whether you want Charlie Hebdo to, to do this or not. Mm -hmm. 
and, and everybody will make their personal decision within Penn yeah. how they feel. Yeah. You also talked about this before, but Penn was actually founded uh, as a reaction to propaganda and hate speech. It was founded as a kind of a self-examination uh, where there was a realization that writers themselves, through their writing, perhaps had helped to promote xenophobias and hatreds mm. and intolerance, and that what could happen if there were a worldwide network that communicated, um, could the world be a better place because of this? So, um, you know, a lot of people think of it as a dinner club, but it actually wasn't that. It had much more profound uh, roots to the idea. Yeah. Uh How does PEN work with these issues? I mean, what does the International PEN do, actually? Well, we serve our members, number one, and uh, we get uh, a percentage of the dues from the membership, which is how we operate, along with a few grants. Well, we do all kinds of things. I mean, we have, you know, um, civil society programs. And the thing about PEN is it's hard to just say we do just this because every center is so different and the needs are so different. Uh, you, can't, you, know, you can't compare what's happening in Venezuela to what's happening in Sweden. So you, know, you have this kind of really eclectic world. But there are campaigns that are very important to Penn International, but also to the membership because we have assemblies. So everybody votes for, for the decisions that are made. It's democratic. So, but I think in my presidency, one of the most important things that, that we've done from, from Penn International has been the placing of women really in the center of the organization in a way that has never happened before. So I, I took it very seriously that I, would, that I was the first woman president and I felt it couldn't just be just that. It had to be something real. You know? yeah. Would you describe Penn as a, as a feministic organization today? We're working on that. We're working on it. Okay, <laughs> good. Uh, but do you, do you feel any resistance in the organization for that? Uh... I mean, I would, I, I would not be honest if I didn't say there was some resistance. Yeah. But in general, no. No resistance. But yes, there have been a few little old-fashioned centers that are a little concerned. Right, right. <laughs> I talked to a publisher in Sweden uh, just the other day who, who had been a member for Penn for 30 or 35 years, and she said that, Well, if you go back to that time, Penn was, you know, a number of quite old guys, some women, of course, but mainly guys, and uh, and uh, it was a very more, much more, would you say, um, valuing the traditions and being more maybe representative, but not that activist. Is that a good description of the development of Penn as a whole? Or? Um. Yeah, I think so. There's mm. there's some truth to that. But of course, you know, women were always excluded and and have and are still excluded. You know, that's in many centers there the women are doing the secretarial work and the men are the presidents of mm. the center. I mean, we've done a lot of um, you know, research on this and it's just something that continues and continues and continues. What's the situation like for for female writers in Mexico? Well, I think that as with many writers, women writers everywhere, uh, there are places where they are not welcome. I mean, I'll tell you one statistic just because it's interesting. Kamala Shamsi, the Pakistani English novelist, has done some counting 
and she, because uh, a lot of, there's a, there's a women's organization called Vita Women in Literary Arts in New York that actually Penn has just partnered with to do these counts in all our centers. Uh, but they were the ones who discovered that, you know, you couldn't argue with a pie graph. You know, the pie graph is the pie graph. And that women's books weren't being reviewed and that women, uh, women weren't win winning prizes and all these kinds of things. I mean, in last year, the TLS, only 22% of the reviews were women's books. The Times Literary Supplement, that's pretty shocking. Mm. So, I mean, in Mexico, it must be just ghastly. I mean, I can just tell by surveying it, but we've started our count. But what Camilla discovered is that even in the English-speaking world with the big English prizes, which would be the Booker, the Pulitzer, all of those, in every case, like in 98% of the cases, when the woman had won a prize for her novel, her, the novel was about a man. So we still consciously or unconsciously value the stories of men and feel that the stories of men or the violence against men or war, where there are stories about men at war, are much more important uh, than the stories of women and, and the experiences that women have in the world. Okay, maybe I should open up for questions from the floor. If anyone is uh, interested in asking something, please feel free to do that. Uh, otherwise, we continue here. Okay, one hand. You would say something about the Pen work uh, in those countries where the regime is acting, yeah. they're doing whatever they like, as you said, as you put it. And those countries where, where you are using a pseudo Well, in general, Penn is an organization that works writer for writer for writer for writer, as opposed to an organization that takes on a broad theme. I mean, it's really a writer-to-writer -writer organization. So um, that's what we'll see tomorrow, you know, at least from Penn's point of view, even though she's not a writer, she's somebody who has defended writers, and we've taken this choice, which is a little bit outside of our mandate, but we think it's important we've taken this decision. Well, so just to inform people, tomorrow we have a manifestation uh, to um, talk about this case with Nasrin Sotude, who was sentenced to 38 years in prison in uh, Iran. And uh, she's a lawyer who has defended freedom of speech in uh, Iran. Yeah. For example, Sweden right now is doing an extraordinary advocacy for Gui Minai, the Chinese uh, editor who was kidnapped. So you see how we work writer for writer. So it's, uh, does that make sense to you? We, we yeah, take a writer's it's, case. It's easier to work, in my view, point of view, it's easier to work with somebody that, that they will get, uh, there will be a judgment and they are still alive. When you meet that someone was killed yesterday, this person is killed. I mean, 
Yeah, but we don't forget the ones that are killed either. We, 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 we also uh, bring the government, these people to the attention of the governments or the presidents or whoever they are. But in general, it's an organization that is working writer for writer. And, uh, and you just can't compare. I mean, you know, we have Turkey, where it's, you know, so many writers and editors and journalists are in jail. So we have people, and I think in Sweden, there are people that go and, and observe the trials. We do a lot of observing of trials. We do a lot of visiting to jails. Um, I was just visiting two of these um, Spanish prisoners in jail in Barcelona, but I also went to, to Turkey. I also went and visited Darin Tatur at her home um, in Israel. So, I mean, this is just, every case is different, I've, um, but this is mostly how we work. And, yeah. But even though it's a writer-to-writer -writer organization, uh, the, the principal question here is interesting because what we see now more and more is that governments use uh, other laws, other regulations than actually, you know, forbidding people to write things. They don't say that we well, one of the huge we convict him to mm -hmm. 38 years in prison for writing this. They say we convict him for doing something else, uh, yeah. placing drugs in his car or... Yeah, well, that's always you know. happened. You know, one of the new things we're facing that would be under this umbrella would be lawsuits against journalists yeah. to just destroy them economically through lawsuits. So sort of Daphne Caruana Galizia, who was assassinated in Malta for uncovering the Panama Papers and the fact that visas were being, uh, for EU visas were for sale in Malta for very high, <coughs> high um, fees. She was assassinated. She's a huge case for us and she's no longer alive. Um, and uh, but one of the things that was devastating about her is that in the UK, there are all these law firms that have very strict, and the UK has very strict libel laws. So some of these people, very wealthy, powerful people, can create lawsuits. I mean, uh, Daphne Caruana Galizia had tons and tons of lawsuits against her, and the, her three sons to this day you know, can't cope with the fact that they inherited all these fees and all these uh, devastating economic situation. So that's another way to control and silence. So. And, and there are, you know, governments are very inventive when it comes to coming up with new regulation. Russia yeah. is, is an expert and Turkey is an expert. Yeah. What is a national interest? You are a threat to a national interest because you criticize the government or you are a threat to the national interest because you investigate something. Uh, they don't charge you for actually writing something, but for, you know, threatening their interests. Yeah, they like the to call it terrorism a lot. For example, yeah. yes, yeah. for example. Yeah. Or, which brings me back to my question before, uh, the conflict you described between, the, you know, wanting a balanced and uh, smooth conversation with uh, where you seek common ground rather than conflict, but still, if people seek conflict, isn't there a risk that you, with very good intentions, say that, no, no, you shouldn't seek this conflict. You are not allowed to say this because it creates conflict. You are not allowed to say this because it uh, creates hatred in, in society. Isn't you on a slippery slope, then? Well, I disagree. I mean, I, I believe, I'm one of the people that believes very intensely in freedom of expression because I think that the minute you begin to police it, and history has shown us who is the police, I mean, who decides what we can say? 
and what we can't say. And if you start to decide what those rules are, any government can use those rules against their people. So to me, that is a slippery slope. But then you end up defending things that might create hated, hatred, in a way. Well, not necessarily. I mean, one of the things that we always say in Penn, which is kind of a golden rule, is that we defend the right to speak. We're not defending what is spoken. It's quite different. Yeah, but that, that also means that you have to defend hate speech sometimes, or? No, I think, I think you can defend the right to speak, but not necessarily agree with what is said. Exactly, right, yeah. right. I think that's, that's sort of a clear, it's clear to me. Yeah, I can see yeah, that yeah. as a clear thing. Right, right. Uh, when you are active as, as a writer in Mexico, writing about quite sensitive things, I mean, the first book was actually not the first, I mean, this uh, Prayers for mm -hmm. Stolen, uh, was about uh, the cartels and, and uh, very sensitive issues connected to the cartels. Were you threatened? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I had to leave the country but because a very strange thing happened. But I was more threatened as president of Penn Mexico. That was the more threatening time mm -hmm. uh, and sort of scary time. But what happened with... Uh, Prayers for the Stolen is that for two years before um, I knew what the story would be, I was just trying to understand how violence was affecting women in Mexico because it was very much a male story. So in, in, you know, in, in the newspapers and on television, what was being covered is the violence against men and in what we now have a genre of literature called narco literature was also very much about men. I mean, the women were just, you know, prostitutes, table dancing girls, and mothers. I mean, that was about the extent of it. So I really wanted to try and understand uh, what was happening with women. So for two years, I was interviewing the, the women of drug traffickers, mostly women in hiding. And, uh, and so when I finally realized I wasn't going to tell that story, I was going to write actually about the most vulnerable girls, which were the little girls that were being stolen in the countryside. But I knew where those little girls were going because I had interviewed the women of drug traffickers. So I knew that what the homes were like, what the ranches were like, where they were. And so um, Mexico's most important newspaper published that chapter of my novel about those places in the news section of the newspaper, not in the cultural pages, complete. They, they published that whole chapter complete. And then I went to Pittsburgh's Icorn City, City of Asylum. I think there's Icorn people here. And they, they um, kept me there for a little over two months. And then I went and stayed with my sister and just kind of left the country to see how that, what would happen. But you said that you were more threatened as a PEM president mm -hmm. because your work for a federal law? or Probably for that and just because obviously when, when the journalists um, are being killed, you're, you're notifying Penn International for me at that time and making rants and going to speak to the families and then if, if trying to figure out what they were covering, what because a lot of times it's very important when a journalist has been killed to find out what they were, what they were investigating. You know, this happened with, with Daphne Caruana Galizia, and all those journalists end up, as a, as a group, won the Pulitzer Prize for investigating what she was uncovering. So 
you know, it, it's not good if the story dies with the <coughs> journalist. It's very important to try and keep whatever they were covering alive. So yeah, so I, I had quite some scary things happen, but more as, as, as Penn president. Right, and then is, this, is that to steal the situation for No, Penn? I hope <laughs> nothing has yeah. happened recently, yeah. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And what do you think about this, when you actually talk about gun trade, will that create any, or has it created anything similar? No, but actually what worries me more is reading the book in the United States. That is what really, really does, I mean, I'm just going to have to be brave and go, but I was at the University of Texas A&M reading from Prayers for the Stolen, and on the campus, every, I think it's 20 meters, I think, there's a panic button that you can press in case there's a gunman on campus. Mm. And they're all allowed to carry guns. And I spoke to some of the professors, and I said, you know, does this affect your grading of the students to know that in their backpack they have a gun? And they said, absolutely. You know, you will give somebody an A or a B just because you're scared of them. And one man, one professor of English literature, I have to say, he had wasp spray in his drawer mm. because pepper spray is very, you have to be near somebody to, for it to work, but wasp spray is for throwing to trees. And so if there's a gunman over there, they can just get out the wasp spray and, you know, but just to think that a professor has to have wasp spray. Mm. And of course, on social media, there's been a lot of, is gun love pro-guns or anti-guns, like curiosity, do I want to read it, don't I want to read it, you know. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a scary thing to, to, to be in a culture where everybody is carrying guns. Yeah, right. More questions, please. Yep. Yeah, sure. Did everyone hear the question? No. No. Uh, it was, uh, the question was that Penn is actually a, also a literary organization, not only a freedom of speech organization. And, uh, well, you actually asked Jennifer just to elaborate a little bit mm -hmm. on that. Yes. So, uh, yes, I mean, I'm president of Penn, so I do believe that literature can change the <laughs> world. Yeah. Uh, and, but the truth is, especially the novel, has always been the place that has created social change. So it's, it, it, it's very compatible, because in literature, I think, you know, to become another, to speak for another, creates empathy, and uh, so it has been, had that kind of powerful force. But if you look at the history of the novel, uh, you know, I can give examples in English, for example, uh, Dickens's uh, Oliver Twist. I mean, we don't remember any journalism from that time, but we remember Oliver Twist, and we know that child labor laws were completely changed thanks to that novel. And uh, certainly if you think of uh, Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte, I mean, thanks to them, you know, women now, at least in the English-speaking world, um, can buy property and inherit property because those novels exposed the vulnerability 
of being completely dependent on your husband or your brother or a really horrible cousin, you know? And, uh, you know, if you think of, if you cross to France, I mean, Victor Hugo changed the way we see the poor completely. I mean, so, I mean, there's zillions of examples of this. I'm sure in Sweden there must be examples of how the novel uh, changed things. But are they all historical? Because we also live in a time where literature in, is in, in many ways challenged by other media, other ways of communicating. Do you think we will see that kind of... I would like to say of... enriched, not challenged. That's it, but do you think <laughs> we will see the kind of important literature change, society changing literature that which you just described? Well, we might see it right now. I mean, this... Your uh, book, of course, but other No, books. not my book. <laughs> I mean, this, the, the, this um, extraordinary Iranian who's at, on this island in detention in Manus off the coast of Australia. He has just yeah. written this extraordinary book on an iPhone that all the publishers in the world are buying. Do you think this is not going to change things on that island? You believe me, things are going to change on this island. His book is going to change things. So yeah, of course I still believe this. Yeah. More questions? I have more of a... Yeah, okay, sir. Yeah. And I didn't bring my new book, I don't think. We only have a Swedish copy here, but... Um... Oh, <laughs> But maybe you, you... Why don't you read a piece? My translator, yeah, come and read a, a bit. Idea. Come here. <laughs> this is, a, for me, a super treat. <laughs> you want to hear my voice? Mm. Well, I, I don't have it in English on me. What a shame. But unless I... What part do you want... Let's, so let's see. I, I have it in the hotel. I didn't think to bring it. Like this. And what part do you want them to hear? I don't, what do you want? The opening or the gun song? I don't know. I'm trying to find... Um, yeah. It's chapter 3. I can't, I can't um, read it in Swedish. You have no. to read it. It's, uh, you really have to read it in Swedish. Yeah, yes. you do. Yeah. Yes. So please, if you... I'll give you this, or do you want this? I think this is okay. Is that fine? Yeah. It's okay with you? Sure. And then, it's good. And it's on. You have your book. It's, it's on oh. now. Yes. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, it's a little bit I hate those things so much. Yeah. 
den lagen kunde honom till så att han får framsättning av hela sängen. I det mörka utrymmet vid bromsen och gasen hade jag ett par tennisbor och ett par sandaler. Mina böcker och serietidningar lockade av i små travlar på instrumentbräden och var duktiga av solen som sken på dem dag efter dag. Maten hade vi i bagagekökken och vi åt bara samt smittbuss och i kylen. Kläderna låg uppbitar i plastkassen. I handspacket hade vi tandborstar, tandkräm och får. Här började man med en bugg med radar och flygande insikter. Varje kväll innan vi på oss stängde vi fönstren och dörrarna och spelade insikter med i bilen. Varje morgon när vi släppte på oss och gäspade fylldes munnen med smaken av radar som blandades med frukostens Cheerios och pulvermjölk utrörd i vatten. I den bilen lärde mamma mig hur man djupade bord och serverade te. Hon visste hur man bäddade en säng med en diskplasta som hon vek runt en bok. Mamma kunde samma saker som hon hade vuxit upp i sitt hus med veranda och pool och fem badrum. Hon hade tjänare på ett lekrum där hon hade alla sina leksaker. Hon kunde spela piano och prata franska eftersom hon hade kommit hem en fransk privatlärare för henne två gånger under hela barnen. När hon var på gott humör smög sig franska ord in i hennes tal. När hon fyllde sju fick hon en sjättelandsspaning i present. Så, det är, det är inte ett bokselartillfälle, men det är en väldigt bra bok, måste jag säga. Sorry, I just said it's a very good book. Yeah, as simple as that. Yeah. Okay, uh, more questions over there. Yeah, I, I will repeat the question. Uh, the question was, uh, what do you think about the future of, of Penn International? Where will it be in 10 years? Well, it's hard for me to go to 10 years, but I can go to three years, because we'll be celebrating our 100-year anniversary. But really, because of this celebration, I've, I've really had to be studying the last 100 years, because it's, I have to organize this, so I'm getting the book together and the celebration, which will be at Oxford University. Uh, and when you look at the 100 years of Penn, it's really such a snapshot of the last 100 years of our world. And it's, Penn is really the history of conflict and crisis. It's fascinating. Obviously, for all of us who are NGOs, we really wish we didn't have to exist. It would be great if Penn were not needed. But when I look to the horizon of 10 years, I think the pen is needed now as much as it's ever been needed, yeah. unfortunately. Mm. Right. Over there? Is the repression of freedom of speech the same as it has been, or has it changed over time, and is it different now from before? You know, I think there are things about it that are the same. If you think of the Soviet Union and how you know freedom of speech was repressed by regimes like that. But what we have now, which is so new, is the social media element. 
And so I don't think that, I mean, just something like Twitter is only like three years old or something. I mean, I think that we're also in this phase of technology that is so new. So, so it's like an old issue, but now we have this new way of addressing the issue. I know, and you see some governments shutting down social media, wanting to stop Google from functioning. It's complex. And, you know, do I feel like I completely understand it? I don't. You know, and where is it going? I'm not sure. Um, it, it's a complex time in terms of technology. I mean, when you see, for example, in China, the way that people are being controlled through this system of points, if you're a good citizen. So if you're a good citizen, you shop here, and you read this magazine, and you buy your clothes there, and you live here, and you go to that school where you're being indoctrinated, right? But if you protest, and if you go buy things elsewhere, you lose points. I mean, and it's if like... Have, if you have friends who protest, you yeah. also lose points. So, yeah. I mean, this is another way that technology is being used, you know, through your eye or through fingerprints or through your your devices to be controlled so you know the challenges that we're facing i don't feel that 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 we even really completely understand them yet would you say that the trump presidency also has changed this or is it just like a short period of time and and then it's it's the same in the us Well, I don't know if we can put the genie back in the bottle, you know? So uh, certainly what Trump has done is this, he has emboldened these really horrific leaders. And, uh, you know, how do you stop that from continuing? Uh, even if, if he's no longer the president, people, I think, are emboldened. I say to myself, okay, a lot of these people, be it Putin, be it Erdogan, you know, they're thinking, I have two years for sure to do whatever I want. And that's a very scary idea, you know. Right. Second question from you, yes? Well, to, to just continue with Trump, I mean... <laughs> uh, we all want to continue with Trump, don't we? <laughs> I mean, for you, with, with one part of you in, in Mexico and another one in... and hearing his talk about the war, and also about this One of the things I did actually was for the book was interview border guards on the United States side. And none of them, uh, I mean, they imagined there was probably weapons going to Mexico, but they had no idea of how many. And they, it is not, they are not expected to inspect uh, cars going south. But about the wall, I mean, you know, we're people of language and pen, so we know that, you know, there are words like wall and there are words like fence. <laughs> there are all kinds of words. And actually there is a fence, or Bill Clinton called them a fence. And what, what he did, what Clinton did, you know, really had a sort of evil component to it because he created a situation with his fence that people had to cross through the Arizona desert, which is an almost impossible place to cross. It's so incredibly hot in the day and freezing at night. And it's now absolutely a graveyard. I mean, it's just full of bodies. And very evil things happen there. For example, 
People that are against the immigrants leave bottles of water hidden under cacti with salt in the water. So you don't know if you're drinking, if that bottle is salt water or real water. You know, it's incredibly cruel. That desert is also full of, what is that stuff called, that plastic to wrap your vegetables that's very, um, like... Cellophane. What? Cellophane? I don't know. It's like plasti wrap, but it's... Mm. They all wrap their bodies with that to keep warm. So the desert is full of, then when it gets hot, they tear it off, you know. So it's full of that plastic. And so actually, everything that Trump is saying is not really true. The numbers of immigrants trying to get across is lower than it's ever been. And it has to do with Clinton's fence, the terror of that desert, the fact that the people that control the border are now these very important um, mafia (coughs) groups, and also because the economy of Mexico has greatly improved. So there's a much less need to go to the United States. And all these factors have meant that the numbers are the lowest they've ever been. So it's all false. I mean, it's so false that both the, the Congress and the Senate voted against it. So I don't think it's going to happen. It's just part of him, his lies. But, but the fact that he's lying and using propaganda and also uh, you know, talking down journalists and trying to, to keep them quiet and banning them from the White House and everything, would you say that in, in such a climate, does that stop people from writing and saying what they want or does it trigger people to do it? Because sometimes I can feel that he's also triggering a lot of, of debate and, and critique in a way that probably wouldn't be possible in Iran, but still is possible in the US? Well, I think both things are happening. I think there are people that are practicing self-censorship and have fear of attack, and then there's some that are emboldened because they share views that they've been repressing their racists or their white supremacists or you know, things that have been maybe, they have been afraid of being attacked. So I think both things are happening. I don't think, I, don't, I think it's complicated. Yeah. And for sure, we can say that it is, is it is very polarizing. Very polarizing. And creating a lot of more of these hate speech that you mm-hmm. that we talked about before. Yeah, and there's a big backlash to having had a black president. Mm. You know, this is also what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Is that a backlash from that? You think? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is a backlash, but it, it, was it as a result of the backlash? I think there, a lot of it is a result of the 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 racist positions of many, many, many people at the sort of horror of having had a black president. And for those of you who don't know, um, just in case you were wondering, it's, it's much better to be a black man than to be a woman of any color. So in the United States, black men got the vote 40 years before women did. So it was very obvious to anybody who knows that history that there was no way that Hillary Clinton was going to win. <laughs> No, that's true. They haven't had a female president yet. No, and they won't for a while. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, more questions? Uh, Yeah. Can you tell us about the women's manifesto? Absolutely. Sorry. Yes. Can you tell us about the women's manifesto? Maybe we should read it. I can read that. Yes. Yes. You have it with you. Yes, I do. You have that, but not your book. That's interesting. Well, it shows my priorities. (laughs) 
Well, the Women's Manifesto, so when I became the first woman president, and I really wanted to address um, the role of women um, in the organization, the first thing that we really needed to do was to change the charter. And because the charter had said that we will, um, we will do everything to dispel hatreds of class, race, and nationality. So as a woman for, in Penn for 25 years, I'd always read that like, oh, what's missing in that charter? And so we changed it to be all hatreds, and we introduced the word equality. Because of course, in the 1920s, the idea of equality didn't even exist. So once that happened, then I worked on the charter with a group of, of women. And for me, what was very important was that the language be literary, that it not be human rights language, that I felt that in my ear was rather tired. Some people wanted it to say like freedom of expression rights or women's rights. That to me sounded like Beijing. Um, it just sounded old in my ear. You know, I wanted something that had sort of a fresher sound. And um, so I think, it, I think it succeeds. And I think one thing that's happened with the Women's Manifesto that's been extraordinary is that it has transcended Penn. So UN Women have taken it on. The International Publishers Association has taken it on. Many, many organizations and individuals, people like Darin Tatur, has spoken about it, translated it into Arabic. Her Royal Highness, the Princess Nandi of Zulu, KwaZulu Natal in South Africa, she translated it into Zulu and is taking it to her Zulu women. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister of Scotland, endorsed it and has it on her wall, framed on her wall. So it's it's a document that 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 has left pen, and I've tried to think, you know, why did this happen? And in fact, um, El Naz in the, in the dissident blog, um, I had to write an essay about how this was created. And I think it's because it's, it's not a, a document of anger, it's a document of sorrow. And I think that this has made a difference. So I'm really happy to read it. Um, so the core of it is that, uh, Religion, tradition, and culture cannot be more important than human rights. Speaking of what we're going to be marching about tomorrow. So the first and founding principle of the Penn Charter asserts that literature knows no frontiers. These frontiers were traditionally thought of as borders between countries and people. For many women in the world, and for almost all women until relatively recently, the first and the last, and perhaps the most powerful frontier, was the door of the house she lived in, her parents' or her husband's home. For women to have free speech, the right to read, the right to write, they need to have the right to roam physically, socially, and intellectually. There are few social systems that do not regard with hostility a woman who walks by herself. Penn believes that violence against women, in all its many forms, both within the walls of a home or in the public sphere, creates dangerous forms of censorship. Across the globe, culture, religion, and tradition are repeatedly valued above human rights and are used as arguments to encourage or defend harm against women and girls. Penn believes that the act of silencing a person 
is to deny their existence. It is a kind of death. Humanity is both wanting and bereft without the full and free expression of women's creativity and knowledge. So that's the Penn International Women's Medical. And actually, that took us to one hour of discussion, and I think it was excellent final words. Yes. Thank you. <laughs>